welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Jesus submitted himself to crucifixion in order to go way out of his way to meet the needs of those who were hurting. Jesus always sees those who are hurting, and he comes and makes a special trip just for them. My house on Thursday afternoon was under a missile barrage, and uh, I heard some loud talking over in the other yard, and first came over uh, a wicket, and then a tennis ball, and then some children's toys, and then a great big bucket came over. And then after that, since there was nothing else readily at hand, there were some rocks that started coming over on my patio about this size, and they kept getting a little bit larger. Some cigarette butts came over. And uh, a lot of laughing and hilarity And uh, I'm thinking to myself, uh, what in the world am I going to do? Because I have some windows over here that are exposed, and I have some siding that could be dinged up. If I go out there and I yell at those kids, I'm going to make enemies out of my neighbors. Finally, the thought came to my mind, I'm going to go over and knock at the front door. That's what I did. I knocked at the front door, and uh, the parents were in the living room, oblivious to what was going on in the backyard, and I said to them, I'm sorry to make this my first occasion to knock at your front door, and I don't mean to complain, but um, someone's throwing rocks and toys into my backyard from your direction. And uh, the mother scurried around, and she said, oh, well, okay, and the guys that were there, they said, okay, just, all right. So then they closed the door, and I went back to my house, and sure enough, the missile barrage ceased. And I thought that would be the end of it. And then pretty soon there was a knock at my door, and I opened it, and there were two fathers with two very penitent little boys standing out front. And one of them commenced to say, we're very sorry that we were throwing rocks at your house. And then the father nodded very proudly, And then the next little boy said the same. I don't know how old they were. They were just little tykes. The next one said just about the same thing. And uh, I said to them, apology accepted. Now, if you'll go with your fathers to the backyard, I'll hand your toys back over to you. So they went back to their backyard, and uh, I handed the wicked back and the tennis ball and the toys And then one of the little tykes said, and can we have the green bucket back, too? And so I filled that with all of the rocks, and I handed it back to them along with a cigarette butt. That taught me an interesting lesson. 
and that is that I don't know whether they're Christians or not, but even people who are neighbors and in the world have a sense of what it means to ask for forgiveness and to be sorry for their wrong actions. And it tells me that even some young parents, these young men, are willing to uh, stand for some principles in order to teach their children those lessons. Well, that was a humbling experience for those two little fellows. And I'm sure it was a humbling experience for the fathers too, don't you? To do the same. Repentance, confession of sin, humbling the heart, being crucified with Christ. No, it isn't easy. But it's the way that Jesus has set for you and for me to follow him. And that is that self may be crucified with Christ. Amen? Now, Jesus sees this as the greatest need of the world, is the humbling of the heart. And Jesus went out of his way to meet the needs of hurting people in this world. And the only way that Jesus could meet the needs of hurting people is for him from the very start to live by this principle of crucifixion to self. It's the only way that he could come to this earth was to give up all that he had in order to come down to meet the needs of hurting people. A Christian couple was uh, picking up a lady who had been in the hospital for several days and they were taking her home in their car and this woman was just full of paranoia. She was doing all kinds of backseat driving. Uh, be careful, you know, here comes a car from this direction, and, uh, oh, please stop, can't you just power down? And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to jump out of the car. And all kinds of exhibitions of paranoia like that. And they could tell that this woman was under great anxiety, and she said, I hope my husband hasn't gone back to her ex, because sometimes he does that when I'm not at home for several days. Here was a woman who was obviously hurting very deeply. We had a brother who was in our Vallejo church a number of years ago, came to church every Sabbath, who um, appeared from all appearances, seemed to be a fine Christian man, had a wife and a daughter. And then we got the news that he had jumped off of the Golden Gate Bridge. And there's obviously an individual who was hurting very deeply and struggling with great depression and thoughts of suicide, which he acted upon. There's a lot of hurt in this world, isn't there? Marriages are breaking up. A lot of hurt. People who have lost loved ones, who have died. Depression, suicide, anger. You know, the devil doesn't have to possess people nowadays in order to torment all torment them, does he? All he has to do is instigate a lot of these common issues that we face from one day to the next. And sometimes people just drown it in either alcohol or in drugs, don't they? And then again, great problems issue forth in their lives as a result of that. I think of Mark chapter 5, an occasion when Jesus went out of his way to help a man who was hurting, 
I think that Jesus must have known about this gentleman. The Lord Jesus had been ministering the bread of life to a vast number of folks, 5,000 people, and he had fed them there on the north shore of Galilee. And if Jesus was only thinking of himself, I suppose that he would have encouraged the crowd to stay on for a long meeting because it's always great to have a big crowd listening to you, you know, and have the acclamation of the masses. But Jesus felt that it was time to end the large meeting because he had on his heart the needs of one individual that he was thinking about, and that person was on the other side of the lake. And so that evening, he bid the disciples to bring the boat up to the shore, and they boarded it. And on their journey across the lake, a great storm came up. And on that occasion, in Mark chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus spoke the peace to the waters, and he, as creator, was able to calm them as placid as a mirror. Here you have the creator capable of overruling the unruly elements of the earth, Can Jesus do that for one who is hurting and tormented with demons? It tells us in Mark chapter 5 that when he was, verse 2, that when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, And the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Obviously, here is a man who is hurting, who is in great need. And Jesus goes out of his way to meet his need. It says in verse 6 that, When he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and he worshipped him, and he cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? See, even the demons recognize the divinity of the Savior. But then he says, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And there you have the devil's concept of God, that God is a tormentor. And that is the lie of the devil, isn't it? That he would convince people that the God of heaven is a tormentor. When all the while Jesus had come to deliver him from the tormentor. It is the devil who is the tormentor. It's the devil who is the accuser, you see. But the devil just turned all of that upon the character of God. And so it says that in verse 8, he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. And now there was, a great, uh, there was nigh unto the mountains a great herd of pigs that were feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And the swine, demon-possessed, made a headlong dash into the Sea of Galilee. And then it was that the owners of the pigs came out from the village, and they were just greatly upset, and they wanted Jesus to leave the country. 
those villagers needed Jesus just as much as the demon-possessed man did. But uh, they drove Jesus away, didn't they? The point that we want to bring out here is that Jesus, he sees someone who is hurting. He's not in the neighborhood, but he knows it. And he makes a special trip to help deliver that one who is tormented. There shouldn't be any doubt then in our minds that Jesus knows you're hurting. He knows what your need is. You may believe that Jesus goes out of his way to help to deliver you from the torment. We know this because of some wonderful steps that our Savior took in Philippians chapter 2 in coming down to this world in order to to meet the needs of sinners who didn't know who they were and what they were about, and they were just in such a lost condition. But Jesus knew his beloved ones, and he wanted to deliver them from their sin. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul begins by exhorting you and me, let this mind, he says, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this character, let this attitude, let this mind, this character, this attitude of Jesus be in you. Just what is that mind? Well, it is the mind of crucifixion of self. And Jesus takes seven steps in crucifying himself in order to go out of his way to meet your need and my need. Let's look at those steps together. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, Who being in the form of God, Jesus is God. Amen? Amen. Jesus, our God is a consuming fire, says Paul in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is a consuming fire. Now, if Jesus manifests his form to sinners as a consuming fire, will that do them any good? No, it won't, will it? And so he took, uh, it it tells us, he thought, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Adam and Eve, they wanted to be God, didn't they? Like the gods. Lucifer, did he want to be God? That would have been robbery on his part to steal that from God, wouldn't it? Eve was tempted to be as God. That would have been robbery for her, wouldn't it? To want to steal God's authority. But for Jesus to consider him God, himself God, was that inappropriate for him? It wasn't, because he was God. Verse 7, here is the first step. But he made himself of no reputation. Do you see that first step there? So here you have the great creator and the great God, and some versions translates this, he made himself nothing. And maybe some of you have a translation that uses that word nothing. Jesus made himself a cipher, a zero, nothing. 
Step two, he took upon him, it says, the form of a servant. Now, I like this thought that his form as God, as we've mentioned, was our God is a consuming fire. But in that form, he was a servant. In that form, he was a servant. But since we could not abide his presence as being a consuming fire, he divested himself of being a consuming fire and took upon himself the form of a servant so that we could see him. He could manifest himself in our midst. That's a wonderful step on his part, isn't it? So it didn't change his character. His incarnation didn't change who he was. It just changed his outward form. It says he took upon him the form of a servant and was made, how? In the likeness of men. And here's where you can tell the distinction between the true Christ and the false Christ. The false Christ always is given an exemption from being exactly like men. The first uh, uh, papal encyclical by Pope Benedict says that God is like both eros and agape. In other words... There is self there, and there is godlike love. There is a mixture between eros and agape. In other words, Christ didn't really truly give himself fully to humanity. And so the teaching is that not only was Jesus immaculately conceived, but so was his mother Mary, because if Mary was a sinner, then Jesus being born in her womb, there would be uh, sin particles that would rub off upon Jesus, and therefore he would be guilty and need a Savior himself. And so you know that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception goes back to the conception of Mary herself. Those of you may be, understand this who have come from Roman Catholicism, in that Mary was born without sin from her mother so that she could be a clean, fit vessel. In other words, she didn't need a Savior herself. Did Mary need a savior? Was she a sinner? She herself declared that Jesus was a savior and that she needed just such a savior. And so here you have a teaching of a false Christ that gives Christ an exemption so that he takes upon himself uh, sinless flesh. But I don't know any among us who have sinless flesh, do you? And so therein lies a false Christ. And anyone who has such a doctrine of Christ automatically concludes then, well, Jesus was so much different from me and he never met any of the temptations that I have to meet internally. Uh, There's no way that I could ever obey the commandments like he obeyed the commandments and the reason why he was just totally different, you know. And so therefore, you're exempt from obedience too. And it doesn't matter if you indulge in a little sin just so long as you get some of the Sacraments, you know, every week, uh, that takes care of everything. And it's a promotion of sinful life and behavior. Well, any form of teaching regarding Christ that exempts him from taking our fallen sinful nature and meeting the temptations that we have, have to face means that we have a Savior who has not come near to us but is afar off. 
But the Bible teaches that Jesus took our sinful human nature and he was tempted in all points like as we are. He was made in the likeness of men, as Paul says here. And then the next step in verse 8, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He crucified self. Now, if you take a self like we're born with, our self always wants control, always wants first place, doesn't it? Now, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful, likeness of men. He had us, he took a self like us, but he humbled it. He crucified it. And that was the principle that was exhibited from the beginning when he first took the steps down to this earth to meet our human need. And it continued throughout his whole career and his ministry on this earth. Being found in fashion as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself. It says he became obedient unto what? Unto death. You see, as soon as he took this mortal nature of ours, pardon me, as soon as he took this fallen human nature of ours, that subjected him to death. As soon as Jesus was born, he was born to die. He committed himself to death from the very start. But it wasn't just any kind of death that he committed himself to. It says, even the death of the what? Of the cross. Now, the cross was something of a pagan symbol. And I know that uh, today we look at the cross as a glorious thing. Maybe we ought to wear a cross. Maybe we ought to put it on our church. Maybe we ought to display it properly, prominently so that people know that we are the people of the cross. But are you aware that the cross is a symbol of paganism? I I came across an interesting source this past week that I had in my files. I didn't know I'd had it there for some time, but I began to read it. And it connected some of the dots for me, and I want to just share with you a, a couple of thoughts. It's from just because it's conveniently put together and not because necessarily of an authoritative source. But uh, the man's name is John Garnier in his book, The True Christ and the False Christ. And in volume 2, pages 40 through 42, he says this, The cross as the symbol of the tree, it's a reference to the tree of life. The cross as a symbol of the tree of life, you remember from the Garden of Eden? Uh, And the distinctive emblem of the life of which the tree were the manifestation has been from the earliest time the badge and emblem of worldly honor, power, and authority. It was not only the symbol of the authority and dominion of the priesthoods and pontiff kings of paganism, But it was the form of the pagan military standards, the emblem of victory. And it is still the badge of worldly and military honor and success in the nations of Christendom. The cross, as the distinctive symbol of the life and power of which the sun god was the supposed source, was the fate reserved for criminals and prisoners of war. 
the weapon, so to speak, by which they were put to death as enemies of the state and its God, the altar on which they were sacrificed to him. For throughout the East, as well as in pagan Rome, the mode of execution was either by the cross or by fire, the latter being also regarded as an emanation from the sun god and a manifestation of his life and power. So for paganism, even before Rome, the cross was a symbol of life, which is the sun god. The text, I thought that put, shed quite a bit of light on what Jesus says here in Philippians 2 and verse 8. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the what? Which is the symbol of the pagan sun god of life. Because Jesus was considered to be an enemy of the state. And so the symbol of life was that on which all the enemies of state were executed in order that the state may continue to live on, live on by virtue of the sun god. That's the ultimate step that Jesus took down when he saw hurting people who needed his help. He submitted himself to the symbol of paganism. And he crucified self to meet your need. And that's the rock-bottom message of communion, isn't it? To follow Jesus means to be crucified with him. That self may be crucified with Christ. Someone mentioned in our class today I've tried to explain, they said, regarding the doctrine of Christ and the kind of humanity that he took to my fellow workers. And they say, that's wrong because Jesus wasn't like us. And we know what the truth is. Romy was telling me this in our class. So don't try to convince me. We know what the truth is. Isn't that... Uh, the natural human heart is for self to rise up and to be proud and say, I know the truth. Aren't Christians prone to that? And isn't that the greatest barrier for the Holy Spirit to reveal new light to us that's shining from the Word of God? The principle for us as God's remnant people, as the denominated church of Seventh-day Adventists, who is a, which is a movement of the restoration of the agape love of God, which is a restoration of the true gospel and all of the commandments of God, the agape love of God, the lesson for us is that God has new light to shine from us, to us from old sources in order to lead us to his coming. But the only way that the Spirit can do that is for hearts that are humble, whose self has been crucified, and who are not proud and self-satisfied, but who recognize that wherever the channels are that the Spirit chooses, the truth, as confirmed by the Word and the inspired sources, is to be received. Otherwise, the Spirit is quenched. 
And by the way, this is a movement, a Pentecostal movement of the grandest scale. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is a Holy Spirit movement. We dare not quench the Spirit. And the only way that the Spirit can, uh, can be quenched is if self is still rising up in opposition to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. So the antidote to it is the principle of the cross, being crucified with Christ, a humble, childlike spirit that tests everything according to the word and not just from the human spirit saying, I'm satisfied with what I have. I don't need any more. Jesus came all the way down those seven magnificent steps, went completely out of his way in order to meet your hurt and your needs. Didn't he? He took your sins upon his own body and bore them on the tree. And yes, Jesus knows what it means to be paranoid. Jesus knows what it means to be depressed. He knows what it means to have suicidal feelings. He knows what it means to be rejected in the most intimate of relations, a la his rejection by Peter. He knows all of the common hurts of humanity, of losing loved ones that are closest to him. And therefore, he is a wonderful, healing, heavenly psychiatrist. He comes to you now. This is the message of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, that he wants to purify his saints who are looking by faith to that sanctuary, and he can heal you of your deepest heart problems. He can heal you. He's a doctor. Let's just make it practical. You, you will go out and you will find a psychiatrist and you're willing to pay hundreds of dollars an hour to listen to their expert advice. But here you have a heavenly psychiatrist who gives you healing for free. The gospel is free to all. And he seeks you. And I, he bids you to seek him in this hour of his intercession on your behalf. The communion table teaches us the lesson of self being crucified with Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, the foot washing service teaches us the principle of being washed and generated by the Spirit of Christ which is the spirit of agape love. We are born as children of God by the Holy Spirit. And that spirit is the spirit of love which Jesus gave to us on his cross and which he imparts to us through his Holy Spirit. This is the means by which we are daily born as children of God. And that washing comes to us momentarily, By faith, we are cleansed. Today, we outwardly symbolize that by washing one another's feet and receiving his cleansing. And it directs our faith to our Savior, who is the high priest and the most holy, who wants to cleanse our soul from sin and impart to us his overcoming sin, even as he overcame. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.
Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.